will be our focus. And today as we begin, I just I think it's a good time to just stop and pray and thank him for what he's done. Honestly, Cameron, bring something up for me just, just so that um, I, can, I can make an example just before we pray. The second song we sang, God of this City, go to the verses where it shows us over and over who, who he is and, and what, what he's about. <clears throat> You're the Lord of creation, the creator of all things. You're the king above all kings. You are. Now go to the next one. You're the strength in our weakness. You're the love to the broken. You're the joy to the sadness. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. We've read that one already. You're the light in the darkness. You're the hope to the hopeless. You're the peace to the restless. The things that we're going to be studying in, in the last three chapters of John make this all true. We couldn't say that he's the hope to the hopeless. We couldn't say he's the peace to the restless. We couldn't say that he's any of those things. Had it not been for the three chapters that we'll be studying, I would encourage you if you're if you're from this area and you're and you're looking for a church to plug into, um, I don't think there's a better, a more important part of the scripture to study, and that's what we'll be doing the next three weeks or, or several weeks. Uh, let's just pray now, Father. We do thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for His love and your love for us, as undeserved as it is. I just pray that in this time as we go to your word and, and, and hear from you and, and see Jesus exalted, that um, our hearts would be stirred, that we would be moved to let go of everything in this world that we hold on to, that provides us some sense of hope and security and trust, and that we will recognize that Jesus truly is King of kings and Lord of lords and can be trusted in all things. And that his provision for us was, was not some secret or some surprise, but something that you had been planning all along. I thank you that we can read of this and, and hear your truth taught. Pray, Father, that your spirit would be on us heavy, that, that you would bring the words into our hearts and, and help us make application that we might stand, stand and then walk in your truth. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in John 17, um, or I'm sorry, John 18. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We were, we were, for those of you that are visiting, we've been in John 17 long enough. I guess I just uh, didn't realize we had changed. But <clears throat> here we are. We've turned a corner. Jesus is leaving the city. I'm going to set this over here, Matt, so if you're looking for it. Jesus is leaving the city. He's headed out to the garden, and that's where we pick up the story. We're just going to jump right in, and we're going to read. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, I just want to set the stage for what's happening. I want to bring you into the context, and I want you to get a picture of this in your mind. Jesus has been in the city. He, is, he, he had been sitting in an upper room with his disciples. He had been teaching them, pastoring them, telling them, uh, trying to comfort them because of what was going to be happening. He was preparing them for, for all that was about to occur. And he comes to this place where he prays for them. He doesn't just pray for them, but he prays for us. And at the end of that prayer, he says, all right, it's time to go. So they get up and they leave. 
And they leave out of the city and they cross this valley called the Kidron Valley. Now there's some theologians that as they, as, as they look at this, they look at the meaning of the word in the original text and they say that it means darkness. And, and they try to imply that Jesus is crossing into this place where all that was ever intended to happen is about to, about to occur. Jesus is about to become darkness. He is about to become sin for all of mankind. <clears throat> and so st- some theologians think that John is rela- relying... I'm sorry that John is telling us of that so that we can understand this is about to, about to occur. There's other theologians that point back to David. David was the king of the Jews. He was the king of Israel. And in his time, in his reign, at one point, Absalom, his son, decides that, hey, I want to be king. I'm tired of you being king. And he kicks him out. Basically, he steals the throne out from under his father's reign. And David has to leave. And when he leaves, he crosses the Kidron Valley. And and there's this picture, there's this parallel drawn by some theologians that as David, the rightful king of Israel, is cast out by the Jews, rejected by his people, that that's just the exact same thing that's happening with Jesus. And in a way, you can see the parallel. You can see that Jesus, having come to minister, having, having come to do this thing, you know, he, he's, he's in this place doing these amazing miracles, providing and protecting and teaching truth. And here he is leaving, being rejected by the people he came to save. And, and, and leaving the city that was rightfully his. Now, I don't know if John was really trying to tell us that. That's what theologians say. What I do know is that we've come to a point in the Scripture, in the Gospel story, that every Gospel writer has to come to. It wouldn't be a good news if we hadn't come to this point where he's leaving a city and entering a garden where some horrendous and horrible things were about to happen. Now, as we read John's account of this, we're not going to get the same picture that we get from the other three gospel writers. You see, the other three gospel writers allow Jesus' humiliation to be seen. They, they, they allow him not just to, to be betrayed. I mean, they write about his betrayal, but they write about his betrayal with a kiss. They, they, they show Jesus as, as in, in, in this time of prayer where he is sweating drops of blood and carrying the weight of what he's going to do. But John shows us a different picture of Jesus, and he's been showing this picture of Jesus since he began writing the very first words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, Jesus or John didn't set out to show Jesus as simply a man who suffered. But John set out to show a God who came and put on flesh and dwelt among us and died a sacrificial death that we might know life. And so as we come to this point, John isn't going to show us the humiliation. He's going to show us a picture of Jesus exalted, a picture of Jesus in control, a picture of Jesus sovereign, even in the moment in which he's being arrested. And it appears that all is lost. And that's what we're going to see today. You see, not only, not only are we seeing Jesus, I, I mean, Jesus, here he is. He's, he's, he's about to do this thing. All of this stuff is about to happen to him. He's prepared his followers for it. And this one guy, this one guy, his name's Judas. You, we just read about him. He, he, he has been, he's, he's betrayed Jesus. He's become a traitor. And so he, Judas takes off. And while Jesus is leaving the city and heading to this garden, Judas is out getting guys together to come and get Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. The picture in my mind of this, of this event has always been Judas shows up in the garden with about 10 or 12 people and they say, all right, Jesus, you're arrested. Come with us. But as I studied over the last few weeks, 
as I listened to other pastors preach on this, as I listened to or read from many commentaries, I found that I have been sorely mistaken. You see, the word that that, that we read as a band of soldiers, as as we read this translation, a band of soldiers, and I'm not sure what your translation might say, that the word from the Greek really refers to a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's 400 to 600 men. It's a lot of people for 11 guys. But it wasn't just the soldiers that were there. There were temple guards. Temple guards. Judas goes, he gets some Roman soldiers, he gets some temple guards, and the Pharisees, that's the leaders of the the Jews. And and so these people from the Jewish council come out. And so there's some estimates that a thousand people, some people estimate as many as a thousand people follow Judas to this place in this garden to arrest Jesus. And he had 11 guys with him. Now, when I started to think about that, I thought, that's crazy. Why did they need so many? Why, why did they go with their torches and their swords? Why, if there were so many people, why would they have to take that many? Or, or why would they even have to take their weapons? And I realized, Jesus had been doing ministry for three years now, by this point. He's been doing ministry for three years. And, and his ministry didn't just occur of standing up and teaching truth, although that was a big part of it. But he demonstrated great power. I mean, he was, he was able to walk up to people who couldn't walk and say, get up and take your mat and walk. He was able to, to put his hands on people and heal them of leprosy. He was able to tell a blind person to see. He was able to make the deaf hear. He was able to feed 5,000 people with two loaves. or I'm sorry, five loaves and two fish. See, he had, he had demonstrated his great power over and over and over again. And as he stood and taught truth and, and, and became um, an embarrassment to the Jewish people and, and set himself at odds with them because his truth didn't agree with their tradition, they had tried over and over to arrest him. On multiple occasions they had sought to arrest him, and he always eluded them. So here he is, himself and 11 of his closest followers, in a garden, gone to a place where Judas knew to go to find him. It's very interesting. You see, I, I think as I read that, as I read that, I don't think Jesus went to the garden to hide. I, I think Jesus went to the garden to be found by maybe a thousand men with swords and torches because they knew his power. You see, I think that on that night, these men that Judas had gone and got, I, I, I think that they knew full well, and they had a healthy respect for what was misapplied, misunderstood, uh, underestimated. They had a healthy respect for this man, Jesus. But they thought he was a criminal. They treated him as a fugitive. That's where we're at. This man, Jesus, who, who our culture, this man, Jesus, who, who in our culture is a good teacher, a super nice guy. He wouldn't hurt anyone's feelings. He wouldn't do anything to offend you. He'll take you as you are and leave you that way. You know, this Jesus that our culture so honors and so adores, 
they recognized that they needed that many people to go and arrest him. Just a thought. So there he is in the garden. Judas shows up. We're back in verse 4. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I had never noticed this. As many times as I've read the book of John, I had never noticed this until just this week. And, and this is the picture that immediately entered my mind. Jesus says, I am he. Boom. And power goes out from him and knocks them flat on their back. And there's some people that would say, oh, well, there wasn't a miraculous event took place. Come on. Why do six, at, at least 600 Roman soldiers, why do they fall down? Why do they draw back? Why do, what happens? I think Jesus showed their power. In fact, the picture in my mind, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Armageddon or not, but in, in the end of Armageddon, they've just drilled to the middle of this asteroid and, and it's, you know, time is tight and it's just, there's this dramatic event that happens and, and the father is going to sacrifice him so that, himself so that his son's or his daughter's boyfriend can go and be with her. And, and he's on the, on the asteroid and everything is just looks like it's falling apart. And just at the last minute, he pushes this button and it blows up. And there's this picture of this asteroid splitting in half. And there's this ring of power from this explosion. Boom! And it just goes out. And that's what I'm picturing in my mind. Jesus says, I am he. And it blows them on their back. It knocks them flat. 600 men who went to arrest him, who thought that they were, he was going to be at their mercy, who thought that they had control of the situation, show up at this garden. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Boom. Who's in control? Who's at whose mercy? Who is, is the one that knows what's going on? He says, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. As, as that story, you know, is told and as that story is reflected on, I have no doubt that these men thought that they knew all that they were going to do. But in this moment, in this, in this event, Jesus, Jesus was not surprised. It wasn't as if all of his plans had fallen apart. He knew full well all that was going to happen to him. In fact, it says Jesus knew all that was going to happen. The path to the cross was the path that he knew he was to take. He knew that this would occur. He knew that this night, that this moment, when these guards would come to this garden, had always been planned in theological terms, this is called foreknowledge. You see, Jesus, being God, He sees outside of time. 
He's not bound by, by a perspective like ours. He can see the beginning and the end as if it's already occurred. He knows all that will happen. And as he stood there in the garden, it was not a surprise to him that Judas showed up with all of these soldiers and all of these temple guards and these Pharisees. It, it wasn't a surprise to him that they were angry and upset with him. And, and that, that he had set himself at odds with them. He knew that this would occur. It didn't surprise him that they would walk forward and bind his hands and take him to, to the high priest. It didn't surprise him that the path was going to lead to the cross. He knew all that was going to occur. Jesus was not a victim. You see, it wasn't like Judas got the best of him. It wasn't like Judas had figured out, okay, if I just do these things, I can beat Jesus. It wasn't as if Judas had some plan, some ulterior and, and, and secret plan that was going to be bigger and better than Jesus's. Jesus always knew who Judas was going to be. Jesus always knew what Judas was going to do. And Jesus, when he sat there in that dinner earlier that night and he told Judas, go and do what you got to do, go and do it, he knew that he wasn't leaving to give money to the poor or take care of orphans. He knew that he was going to assemble some 600 to 1,000 men to come and arrest him. He knew that as he left Judas in that city and as he crossed the Kidron Valley and went into the garden, that Judas would know where to go and find him. He knew that on that night he would be arrested. Why? It seems like in this moment, at least for the disciples, you know, we have the, we have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of the scriptures already being laid out for us. But in that moment, you must imagine that it must have seemed to everyone else that everything is falling apart. All that they had expected, all that they had been living for, all that the work that they had been doing was falling apart. And now Jesus, he's, he's being arrested. Jesus didn't go to that garden that night to hide. He went to be found. He knew what was going to occur. Don't ever assume. Don't ever assume that Jesus made a wrong choice. Don't, don't ever assume that, that maybe if He had just done things differently, maybe, maybe if He hadn't gone and taught such difficult truths for those people to hear, maybe if He, if he hadn't said the things that He said, they wouldn't have hated Him so much and arrested Him. Don't ever assume that Jesus could have done something different and avoided this arrest and avoided this moment. This moment had to occur. If this moment had not occurred, the crucifixion would not have occurred, the resurrection would not have occurred, and today you and I would not be sitting here with the hope of life. We would not be sitting here singing songs about a, a Jesus, a God who is our peace, a God who is our provision, a God who is the God of the city. We wouldn't be able to adore Him. We wouldn't be able to recognize Him. We wouldn't be able to see Him. We would be lost in darkness. Jesus knew what He was doing, and He knew this had to occur. He was not the victim. In fact, as I said earlier, I think it's, it's obvious that as He spoke, and these men were knocked to their back, that they suddenly realized He was not at their mercy. But they were at His. He was always in the position of power. He was always in the position of control. He always had things in hand. And so as he did this, 
as he did this and, and, and as, he, as he went into this and allowed it to happen, we see God's sovereign plan, his, his sovereign plan taking place. I mean, even when Peter, Peter, you know, Peter had it. I think he had the best of intentions. I'm going to protect Jesus. My one sword against maybe a thousand. But I'm going to fight him off. He had his own plan. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter. Am I not to drink the cup that my father has for me? Am I not to walk this path that he's given me to walk? Am I not to do this thing that appears like their victory but ultimately leads to my glory? Am I not to do this? Now, you see, he knew God's sovereign plan. He knew all that was to occur. He knew that God's sovereign plan was always Jesus. It was always Him. Jesus knew that He was always plan A. He knew before the foundations of the world. He knew. 1 Peter verse 20 tells us that He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. But He's made manifest in these times for your sake. He came to earth and He put on flesh in these times so that He could do His work. But it had been known before the first ray of light ever came from the sky. Before, before the ground was ever laid, before the heavens were ever created, He knew He was plan A. He was God's sovereign plan for redemption and reconciliation. It wasn't as if in the garden... That when the, when, when the serpent came into the garden and tricked the man and woman into eating that fruit, it wasn't as if God had to take a second look. Oh, wait a minute. I missed it. I didn't plan for that. You see, he knew that we would fail, that we would fall, and that we would need a redeemer. He knew that, that he would send his son, and he knew that his people would reject him. He knew that they would send Him to the cross. And that cross would look like defeat, but it would result in victory because through it the resurrection came. And He knew that that resurrection had to happen so that His people, His kingdom, could find reconciliation to Him, redemption from their sin. He knew that this had to be. And then Jesus knew that this was His plan. So we see Him humbly obey. At any moment, at any moment, he could have said a word and knocked into their back again. At any moment, he could have disappeared. At any moment, he could have called for a legion of angels to come and free him. But he knew the Father's plan. He knew his Father's sovereign plan. And he humbly submitted to it and obeyed. See, Jesus, knowing the plan, doesn't fight. And, and think about it. It wouldn't have been a fair fight. It wouldn't have been a fair fight. I am he. Boom, they fall on their back. Imagine what else he could have done. Peter, I've got to do this. Put your sword up, Peter. Peter. Don't trust in your own plan, Peter. 
I know what I'm doing. And he lets them take him. And they arrest him. And something that's beautiful in the midst of all of this, something that's, that, that's amazing to me in the midst of all of this, is that as Jesus is being arrested, as Jesus is about to be condemned to die, he knows what's going to happen. He doesn't stop and think of himself. He's not just concerned about his own well-being. He says, hey, who are you, who are you here for? Jesus of Nazareth. Who are you here for? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I'm he. I'm the one you're looking for. I want you to leave them alone. You see, in the midst of all that's occurring, we see his foreknowledge. We see the sovereign plan unrolling. And we see the, the, the humble obedience that he had to his father. And we also see him providentially providing protection for his people. And it says in the middle of all of it, in the middle of this discourse, it says this happened to fulfill, to fulfill the word that I said that you, I would lose no one, that, that, that none that you had given me had, had been lost. This is a thread that is weaved all the way through, is woven, I'm sorry, is woven all the way through the book of John. John 17 in the high priestly prayer where we just studied last week. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. John 10.28 says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I, this is John 6.39, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God not only had a sovereign plan for His Son, but He has a sovereign plan for His people, and He will not lose one. If you are safe in salvation, it's because of His work. If you know His love and you are saved today, it's because of His work. At the moment of conversion, and at every step along the way. You don't get saved and keep yourself safe. You get saved and He saves you for all time. That's the truth and that's what He says. I will not lose you. I'm not going to lose one. These are my people. And I'm going to protect them. It's beautiful. It's amazing. How does this apply to us? I mean, what, what did, did, beyond the, the truth that, okay, if this didn't happen, Jesus couldn't die, and if Jesus didn't die, there wouldn't be a resurrection. Beyond, beyond that, does, does there, is there application that, that we can bring into our daily life here? Some, just some story of Jesus being arrested? John wrote this story to bring Jesus to a place to be exalted. He wanted us to see Jesus for who He was. This story exalts Jesus. Of all that He could have done, He could have disobeyed His Father. He could have done some powerful work and freed himself. He could have gone his own path, but he obeyed. He, 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 he could have walked away at any moment. He could have ignored them. He could have done his own thing. But because he loved his father so much, and he desired his father's glory so much, and because he loved the people of his kingdom so much, 
He humbled himself to be arrested. He gave himself up. He wasn't the victim. He did it willingly so that people like you and me could have life. Not just some simple get by life. Eternal life. A life that begins in the moment of conversion and will never end. That will go on forever and ever. And the hope of being in the presence of our Creator for all of eternity. He did it so that you and I could know that. Man, my hope is, along I think with John's, that as you hear these words and you think about what Jesus did, that you recognize His worthiness to be worshipped. That you are moved to, to love Him more. That you're moved to love Him more intentionally and deliberately. That, that, that you don't just go through life just happenstance coming across these times that you love Jesus, but that you wake up in the morning and you love Jesus and you live your life to love Jesus and you live your life every moment of every day striving to love Jesus because He's worthy to be loved. He's worthy to be worshipped. Look at what He did in spite of who He is and what He deserved. He gave Himself up to be arrested. To be treated like a common criminal. To be treated as a fugitive from justice. I mean, they were chasing him. Thousands of people chasing him to arrest him. Hundreds of people chasing him to arrest him. And he did it for us. For his people. For the glory of his Father. I hope that moves you. I hope that drives you to adore him. Because out of that love, everything else will come. You see, I can, te I, I can preach a sermon that tells you you need to obey and these are the things that you need to do and I can lay it all out for you and I can give you all of these works to perform. But that will fail and will fall apart. But I want you to see Jesus high and lifted up, exalted to be not just another dude, but to be God in flesh, come to get us. You see, Jesus, He's not this, He's, he's not this blonde hair, blue-eyed, waving in the breeze, harlequin romance pansy that our culture teaches Him to be. He's a bold, courageous, and divine God that deserves our worship. And that's what He's shown to be. All through the book of John, especially in these pages and in these words. I want you to worship Jesus. He deserves it. I want you to, I want you to recognize that beyond his, his, his adoration and the love that we should have for him, that as Jesus is revealed, as God is shown throughout scripture, not, not, not only does he call us to love him and worship him, but he calls us to give our lives to him, to repent of all those things that the world has to offer. Turn to Him and trust Him and follow Him in faith. Submission and obedience. I don't, I don't know the specifics of your life and I don't know the ways that you need to do that. But over and over and over as the Bible exalts God and as the Bible puts God out there for who He is, it comes back to this place that calls us to trust in Him. Peter thought he had a plan. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if Peter was just a bad aim. 
I, I don't know if maybe he was such a good swordsman that he was able to cut that dude's ear off. But his plan was not God's plan. And Jesus corrected him. Peter, don't go that way. That's not the way this is going to go down. I have a plan. Trust it. Follow me. Obey me. That's his call in every way. The Jews had a plan. And as Jesus taught truth that undermined their tradition, they got angry. And rather than submit and trust him and obey him, they decided they were going to kill him. I hope that as you see Jesus for who he is, that you will adore him, that you will love him with your life, and that you will repent of the sins and the things that are in your life that are contrary to who he is and what he's called you to be. And you'll leave that behind. And, 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 the, and, and the, instead of placing hope in those things that the, the world has to offer, that you will trust him in a radical and, 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 and lasting way. I hope. Now, I don't want you to hear me. I, I don't want you to hear me saying, go home and get rid of your medicine and, and sell your 401k, turn it in, get your money back. I, I, I'm not saying don't plan for the future. I'm not, I'm not asking you to, to just give that all up. I'm asking you just to recognize that you can't trust that stuff. But you can trust Jesus. See, I, I'm not expecting us to, to all go out and live these lives that, that are secluded and, and pull away from the world. No, that's not what Jesus told us to do. He said to go into it. Tell them. Tell them about me. Tell them what I've said. Tell them to obey like I've said to obey. Go and do these things. See, I want you to love Jesus like that. I want you to adore Him with your whole life. Not because it makes me look good, but because it brings God great glory. He is worthy to be worshipped. And our lives should be given to Him. Every aspect of our lives can be turned over to Jesus Every aspect. I'm, I, I just want you to recognize that the situations that you live in now, the struggles that you face today, the, the things that are hurting you and, 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 and seem to be slowing you down and might seem to be obstacles in your way, you can trust Jesus in the midst of every last one of them. He knows where you are. He knows what you're experiencing. And He knows that even in these things that try us and test us, that they can be turned for your good and His great glory. Trust Him. Adore Him. Love Him. And maybe you're here today. Maybe this has the best of applications for those that are here, might be here today and have never believed in Him as Savior. This all happened so that we could know life. Not just life in some future realm, but that we could know life today. He died to give us life. And the call for you that don't believe is to trust in Him. Every head bowed and every eye closed.